Well, good morning, and thank you, worship team, for leading us so well. And thank you, Josh, for reading the scripture for us this morning. You did a really good job. It's been so nice having our young adults and our youth participating in the services by reading the scriptures. So thank you so much to all of you who have done that and are going to do it. Uh, Good morning again, and welcome to Warden. Whether you're joining us in person or online, we're so glad that you chose to be with us today. I hope you're doing well. Um, It's been a challenging year, to be sure. So it's really important, I believe, that we stay strong and hopeful. I was reading about when World War II began. The British government, they distributed posters to encourage resolve among their people. The first series of posters went out on September 1939, and it carried this message, your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. As the war got much worse, a second poster was released with these words, freedom is in peril, defend it with all your might. They were scattered throughout the countryside. They were plastered on trains and restaurants and stores and pubs. A third poster was created with two and a half million copies. This, po- this third poster wasn't used, however, because the British government, they were saving it for an extreme crisis. Then the crisis poster was basically lost for 60 years until a copy was discovered in an auction of old books. And though this third poster was never used during the war, it's probably the only one you've ever seen. It contained just five words. If you know what they are and you're online in our chat, why don't you write them in the chat right now? Now, once found, this phrase quickly escalated in popularity. It was put on coffee mugs, postcards, and posters. People appreciated this simple but strong message to resist anxiety in the face of adversity. The message was, and you've got it, keep calm and carry on. Keep calm and carry on. Today we're continuing in our series on the book of Acts. And as we'll see today in Acts chapter 8, that's what God's church was doing. They had faced extreme adversity. One of their most beloved and fruitful leaders had been brutally murdered by the high court of the Jews. Most of the other Christians, they've been uprooted from their homes and scattered to the winds because of persecution. But the church... It carried on. God touched people's lives in miraculous ways. And by his grace, he's touched our lives as well. And now he wants us to carry on the good work of his church. And we can do that. I really believe we can. And we do it by preaching God's word. You know, different people will respond differently to the gospel. But I want us to look today at what happened in the early church and how it can help us as we carry on the good work of God's church today. But before we do that, I just want to go back and look at the story that has happened so far. In Jerusalem, A.D. 30, Jesus died on the cross, resurrected on the third day, and then descended into heaven. Fifty days after Jesus resurrected, the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles, giving them power, purpose, and a plan. And out of joy, the church was born. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, Peter gave his first sermon, and 3,000 people were saved. Hearing, receiving, and repenting, the young church walked in unity. We see out of joy that the gospel creates community. 
Peter and John then continue to spread the gospel through preaching and miracles, and the church grew by 5,000. Yet inside and outside forces threatened the unity of the church, things including racial tension. There was this couple that held back money from the church body, and then there was the dispute that arose between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. The Hellenists, they were accused of neglecting widows. But in spite of all these issues, the church continued to grow. And everything seemed to be going well, but then the church meets with serious opposition. A godly Christian named Stephen, he's preached before the Sanhedrin, and his message is so powerful and so in your face that the Sanhedrin, they become furious. They drag him out of the city, and they stone him to death, making him the first Christian martyr. Now this stoning of Stephen began the great persecution of the church. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary on Acts chapter 8, says, Persecution does to the church what wind does to seed. It scatters it and only produces a great harvest. And that's what happened. Facing prison and even death, Christians scattered and ran away to find safety. One of those men who ran away was a man named Philip. He went north to Samaria, and he began preaching about Jesus there. He was so powerful and convincing in what he preached. The verse 6 says, When the crowd heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. And then down in verse 12, it tells us that when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now, when word reaches back to the apostles in Jerusalem that there's this new gospel work in Samaria, we see in verse 14, they send Peter and John to check out what's happening, to find out if it's a, if genuine. And when they arrive, they see that indeed it is a real work of the gospel, and there's this glad celebration, and the gospel continues to spread. Then you see that as Peter and John go back and work their way back to Jerusalem, it says that that they preach the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now, one purpose in teaching through the book of Acts is to show the movement or the spread of the gospel across the ancient world and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Now, we know that the gospel gets to the ends of the earth because we're here today. You and I are here today because according to Acts chapter 1, the disciples received power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. They became his witnesses, first in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So today we're going to pass the walls of Jerusalem to the people of Samaria. This is what I'd like to call the second wave and where we take up our story in chapter 8. Uh, I, was, I was reading about a pastor that had, oppor- had an opportunity to preach to some prisoners. Before he began, one of the prisoners got up and introduced him to the other prisoners and, and he used these words. This is what he said. Several years ago, two boys lived in the same town. They went to the same school, played together, attended the same Sunday school. One dropped out of Sunday school and said, oh, that was just sissy stuff. The other boy kept going. One rejected Christ, the other accepted him. The boy who rejected Christ is making the introduction today. The boy who accepted Christ is the honored preacher who will speak to us today. Now, my point is, the way we respond to the gospel will have a great impact on our lives. 
We see in this chapter that there are three different responses to the gospel when it's presented. The first one I'd like to look at is found in verse 3, and it's the response of Saul. Verse 3 says, But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Saul, we can say, definitely resisted the message of the gospel. Now, the book of Acts and the epistles gives us enough information for a sketch of Saul's early life. He was born in Tarshish, a Hebrew of Hebrews, the son of a Pharisee and a Roman citizen. He was educated in Jerusalem by Gamaliel, and he became a devout Pharisee. Measured by the law, his life was blameless. He was one of the most promising young Pharisees in Jerusalem, well on his way to becoming a great leader of the Jewish faith. Now, Saul's zeal for the law was most displayed in his persecution of the church. He really believed that persecuting Christians was one way of serving God. And he was vicious when it came to the church. One, verse, uh, one version of Acts 8.3 says, He made havoc of the church. Now, that verb for havoc describes a wild animal mangling its prey. The stoning of Stephen, which Saul approved us, shows the lengths to which he would have gone to achieve his purposes. He had Christians, both men and women, imprisoned. If they renounced their faith in Jesus, they would be set free. And if they didn't, then they could be killed. And in Acts 26.11, Saul, now Paul, he'll describe himself. He says, Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. See, he was one who resisted the gospel, and he did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now, there are many reasons why people resist the gospel. And you're going to encounter people who will not want to have anything to do with Jesus. They might even mock you or persecute you for your faith. That's a given. You know, someone was sharing with me just the other day how they have this person at their work who's constantly saying hateful things about Christians. And they're wondering how should they respond to that person. And I told them, just be yourself and show as much much love as you can. You see, I believe when we face resistance to the gospel from people, we need to just keep calm and carry on spreading the good news anyways. Another response that we might find when presented with the gospel is to misconstrue it. Simon the sorcerer was one who misconstrued the gospel. We're told in verses 9 to 11 that Simon had practiced sorcery in the city, amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Now, we know Simon practiced sorcery, and sorcery was strongly condemned by God, but it was common in the ancient world. And while some acts and demonstrations were no more than illusions of the mind, others were empowered by Satan in an attempt to discredit God's power. But Philip, on the other hand, his miracles were empowered by God, and they were used to glorify God. 
And I think Simon most likely started to lose a lot of his followers as the Samaritans began to listen to Philip and Philip's messages and seeing the miracles that, that happened when Philip preached. And I see in Simon a man who continued on with Philip, not to hear the good word and learn more about Jesus, but he wanted to witness the miracles and learn how they were done so that he could use this power for his own purposes. Uh, The wickedness of Simon's heart is revealed when Simon not only wanted to perform miracles, but he also wanted the power to convey the gift of the Holy Spirit to others, and he was willing to pay for it. It's, It's this passage that we get our word simony from. Now, simony means the buying and selling of church offices or privileges. Have you ever tried to buy something that's not for sale? I remember a few years ago, I was in downtown Toronto, and I went into this really nice store. It had um, home decor items, there was artwork and, and other really nice things, but the thing that caught my eye was this table, and it was beautiful, it was perfect for what I needed it for, and I asked the sales clerk how much it was, and she said, sorry, it's not for sale. Well, I tried to put on the charm and convince her to sell it to me, but she assured me it could not be bought. It was their display table. Now, we see from the passage that Simon thought that he could buy the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit cannot be bought, can't be purchased, not by money and not by good deeds. Like that table, he cannot be bought. But Simon believed that the power of God came from him, his ability to purchase it and exist for him to direct the spotlight back to him. Now, sadly, Simon's request was based on impure motives. Perhaps he saw an opportunity here to make more money or to enhance his reputation. It was also common for magicians to purchase tricks from one another. So maybe Simon viewed the apostles as religious magicians and he was just trying to purchase their trick. Whatever the reason, realizing that his motive was wrong, Peter strongly corrected Simon, and he said to him, Your money perished with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity." Now, the final piece of information recorded in the Bible regarding Simon the sorcerer is that instead of actually repenting of his sin, he just asked Peter to pray for him that none of the things that he had said would happen to him. Early church figures claimed Simon went on to oppose Christianity and and teach false beliefs, that he was the first heretic. Now, we don't know for sure, but what we do know is that Simon's life serves as a cautionary tale. As believers, we must never try to use the gospel as a tool to achieve success or fame or wealth. You know, there's always going to be Simon-type people and movements in our world. Those who want to use the gospel as a tool for personal gain. But we must never get caught up with people like that. Simon, he would misconstrue the gospel for his own benefit, and there will always be people who will try to do the same thing. We should never follow them and get caught up with them. Instead, we need to guard the gospel truth in our heart, realizing that it's a free gift of God, and we need to keep calm and carry on. 
The third response to the gospel was acceptance. For one Simon, there were hundreds, if not thousands of Samaritans who came to Jesus, repented of their sins, and believed in him. Now, the Samaritans, they were part Jew, part Gentile. The nation originated when the Assyrians captured the ten northern tribes in 732 BC. They deported many of the people and imported others who intermarried with the Jews. The Samaritans, they had their own temple and priesthood, and there was an issue among the Jews and Samaritans as to where the proper place to worship was. We're told that the Jews, they had no dealings with the Samaritans. They did not like each other at all. Now, Samaria and the Samaritan people, they're not new to the Gospels. If you remember in John chapter 4, there's recorded this very significant encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well. And in this account, we're given some very applicable insight into the views of the Samaritans as well as their strained relationship with the Jews. Also, we read about when Jesus was passing through Samaria and he was given this unfriendly reception. Some of Jesus' disciples asked for permission to call down fire on that village. That story is found in Luke 9, 51 to 55. And then in the next chapter in Luke 10, 30 to 37, Jesus told his famous story of the Good Samaritan. In that story, he contrasts the warmth and compassion of the Samaritan with the callous disregard of the Jewish priests and the Levite. We also know that in the Great Commission, Jesus included specifically Samaria. You see, God loves all people, and he wants all people to know about him and accept the good news of the gospel. And that's exactly what happened with many Samaritans. They accepted the gospel with joy and gladness. They were baptized, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit when Peter and John laid hands on them. God touched people's lives in a miraculous way. And by his grace, he's touched our lives as well. And whatever people's response might be to the gospel when we share it, he wants us, I believe, to keep calm and carry on the good work of his church. And we can do that, and we do it by preaching God's word, sharing the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. Francis Chan, he wrote a children's book called The Big Red Tractor and the Little Village. In it, he tells the story of a little village where the people live off the land and they farm each year. Each year, they pull out their big red tractor and they use it to plow the field. They attach ropes to it and they get a group together. Some pull and others push. And every day of plowing season, they move the tractor just a little further across the field. On a good day, they move that tractor 10 feet. They feel blessed to have such a good tractor. They work hard all plowing season. They manage to get the whole field plowed just in time before the rains come and they can plant. The rains come and the harvest grows and the little village has just enough food to get them through to the following year. If only they had a way to plow the field more quickly. If only it was in, within their power to be more fruitful. But this is how things have always be done, been done. They manage and it works. 
Well, that winter, one of the farmers in the little village is clearing out his attic when he discovers the owner's manual for the big red tractor. It explains how, it, how to own it and operate the tractor. He's completely just surprised to discover that if you put fuel in the tractor, it'll run itself. It will run freely without anyone needing to push or pull the tractor. The tractor can actually plow an entire field in a single day. The owner is amazed, and the next day he tells the town, but none of the townspeople will believe him. The tractor can't do that, they say. We know how to operate a tractor. You need ropes, and you need to push really hard, and none of the villagers believe. But in spite of that, the farmer begins to work on fixing the big red tractor. He replaces those parts that are broken and rusted. He cleans out the filters. He fills it with oil and fuel. Finally, right at the beginning of plowing season, late at night when he's done working on the tractor, he turns it on and it roars to life. He's so excited he plows the whole field that night. The next day, the villagers wake up and they can't believe their eyes. The entire field is plowed. They find the farmer asleep on the tractor. He was right. The tractor really can do it all, they say. That year, the villagers plow more fields and farm more food than they've ever farmed before. They bring in such a harvest that they can feed the towns and villages all around them. When they discover that the big red tractor has a power all of its own, it changes everything. Now, Francis Chan, he goes on to explain that his illustration, in his illustration, the big red tractor is the church empowered by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is freely leading and guiding and energizing the church, there is no field we cannot plow. Think about it. Why can't people come to faith like they did in Acts? I believe God is willing to pour out his Holy Spirit. But are we willing? Are we hungry? Are we passionate about lost souls? Are we just pushing and pulling in our own strength just to get it done? You know, I've heard people say, oh, I can't wait until things get back to normal, till we can get back to church in the way it used to be, till it can be normal at church. And you know, I hear you. I've said that myself more times than I can count. But I've been thinking lately, what if God is doing something new? What if he wants us to to, to do something different and greater and bigger. And, and he, he doesn't want us to go back to the same old normal. What if the things that have been happening in our world are the very things that can present us with new opportunities to spread the gospel? You know, it took the persecution of the church to spread the gospel. That was not easy and it wasn't comfortable. But God used it to bring people to himself. So as individual believers and as a church family, I believe we need to just keep calm and carry on in the power of the Holy Spirit, being filled and led by him. Let's be contagious in our joy and our love for people. And I believe that the gospel will spread. My prayer is God. Pour your spirit out. Give us a fresh wind, a second wave of your spirit. And yes, there will be people who will reject the gospel. Some will misconstrue it, but I believe that some will accept it. 
And, and maybe you're listening today and, and you've resisted the gospel for a very long time. You might even hate Christians. Perhaps you don't believe in God or maybe you practice some form of religion. Maybe you're mad at God or you've turned your back on him. If that's you, I want to encourage you to reconsider your response. Even Saul, who initially resisted the gospel and persecuted Christians, he had a genuine encounter with God. He repented and he became a believer. His name was changed from Saul to Paul and he was used by God to spread the gospel and he even wrote many of the books of the New Testament. You see, it's not too late. Come to Jesus today. Let him know that you're sorry for your sins. Accept his free gift of salvation today. And if you make that decision today, please let us know. Um, let us know in the, in the chat or, or let us know by an email. Or if you're here in person, let me know after the service. We want to celebrate with you and we want to journey with you in this newfound faith. For those of us who've already done that, I just want to encourage you today. Don't be discouraged by what's going on around you. The church is still strong. It is God's church. The Holy Spirit is working. The gospel is spreading. So let's just keep calm and carry on. Let's pray. God, we come to you. We thank you for your word. Thank you that we can look to your word for answers, for encouragement, for strength. Lord, as we look into the early church and, and, and what you did when, when the church was being formed, God, I pray that you would inspire us, that you would get us excited about what can happen when we work in the power of the Holy Spirit, when we're being led and guided by you. Lord, I pray that you would put a fresh passion, a fresh hunger in my heart, in each one of our hearts, for those who are in our world that are lost, that are hurting, that are away from you. There are so many that you love. You love everyone, God, and yet they don't know about you or they're rejecting you. So God, help us, show us, lead us, guide us, pour your spirit out upon us so that we can be your witnesses in this time, in the place that you have put us, God. Let Wardenful Gospel Assembly be a place where people can come and, and learn about you and receive freedom from their, their sins because they believe in the gospel message. God, for those who are listening that might not know you, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that, that conviction would just rise in their hearts, that they would be drawn to you and that they would accept the good news of the gospel and that they would be set free. For those who are hurting today, those who are in pain, those who are in need, God, I pray that you would minister to each person in a special way. God, we thank you, and I just ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to thank you for joining us today. Next Sunday, we're going to continue on in Acts chapter 8. So if you have a chance, make sure you read over that chapter this week. God bless you and have a great week.
Well, those of you who are here in person, thank you for coming. It's so good to see all you. Your faces, even with masks on, you all look great. <laughs> and I hope you have a great rest of, uh, rest of your week and this day. God bless you. Let's continue on in the power of the Holy Spirit.